following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sacred City Church. How are we doing? Wait a second. I was the other night at a party with a lot of Sacred City Moline people, and it seemed that the Sacred City Moline people were the ones that knew how to enjoy themselves the most. So I know, I know there's some high-energy people in here, so let's try that again. Sacred City Moline, how are we doing this morning? There we go. Well, thank you guys for, for having me here. Um, it hasn't happened in a while, but occasionally Pastor Sam asked me to preach, and I'm always thankful of his family, uh, especially Riken. I don't know if you knew this, but Riken has left the Raiders and has become a Chiefs fan, which if you paid attention to the scripture, it's the great illustration of what we're going to be talking about today, of leaving darkness and coming to the light. So again, I love Riken. He can join us anytime on a Sunday watching the Chiefs. Pastor Sam asked me to, to preach an Advent uh, sermon today, so that's what we're going to do. But um, really quick, I just want to get this out. Advent is typically four weeks, right? So you get four sermons. That should tell you really how long we're going to be here this morning, right? I have to somehow preach four sermons on one day, so we're going to be here a while. That's not, that's not true. We're not going to be here that long, but we do have a lot of work to do. If you aren't familiar with the Advent season, or even if you are, here's a reminder. It's about the arrival of King Jesus. The word Advent comes from the Latin language, and it means a coming to. Now, in Christ's sake, we may talk about two Advents. Right, We can look back at the one that happened 2,000 years ago 
And being on this side of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we get to look back at that because it's already happened. But the Bible talks about Christ coming again at some point in the future to consummate his kingdom, to fully consummate it. So we also get to look forward to his second coming. But this season for the church, leading up to Christmas as we celebrate Christ's birth, is primarily about Christ's first advent. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a passage that's familiar, a familiar Christmas passage, right? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's highlighted during this time of year, maybe the only time of year we hear about it. But typically, we see it on Christmas cards and Christmas shirts, Christmas coffee mugs, which is great. It's an amazing passage about Christ's first advent. But what I want to do today with this text is kind of bring it back to its biblical context or historical context and do that hopefully without losing the context of Advent and Christmas. Over at Sacred City Davenport, we're finishing up our Advent series, and we picked the theme this year that came from the Protestant Reformation. It's known as post tenebras lux, or again, it's Latin for after darkness, light. In their case, the Reformers used this as kind of a rallying cry, some motivational truths to hold fast to in their battle against the Roman Church. It was to remind them that even though there had been spiritual darkness, which then came with physical or material darkness, God was bringing light. When spiritual darkness creeps in, which it's always trying to do, the answer is always to, by faith, rediscover the light. And then course correct as that light leads us down the right way of living. Our text today shows us an example of why we can trust post brass Lux. Why we can trust that after darkness comes light. We see an example of one of the darkest times in the history of God's people. But we also see that God does not let darkness have the last word. Very good news. But we don't just get to see that God does this, right? Which would show us that God is gracious and for his people. That's truth enough to rejoice over. But, and this is the connection to Advent, it shows us the primary way in which he is gracious and for his people. So here's kind of the thesis statement for today. God has an answer for the darkness in this world. That answer is King Jesus. So let's celebrate and proclaim that. God has an answer for the darkness in this world. That answer is King Jesus. So let's celebrate and proclaim that. Now I wish I had three points or some fancy way to make this easier to follow, but I don't. I'm sorry. I need to go to preaching lab more maybe to figure out how to do that. But we're just going to walk through this section of Isaiah, be in a lot of Bible verses today, and try to show us this amazing truth and how it's good news for us. Are we ready? All right. Let me pray, and then we'll get after it. Father God, we, we thank you for what's already happened today, Lord. It's uh, an amazing time of year that we get to sing these Christmas hymns, and we get to come on Sundays and, and sing them together as a corporate body. Lord, I pray that, that, that we receive from that as we sing those words. Lord, as you call us to rejoice over Christ's coming, Lord, would we rest in that? Would we be present here and be able to receive from that good news? Would we be able to take upon that call and really enjoy you this morning? Lord, we want to magnify you. We want to honor you. We want to bring you glory this morning. We can't do that on our own. So be with me as I preach. Be with these guys as they receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so let's first open up our Bibles. If you guys have a Bible or if you have a, a phone app, or I'm sure there's Bibles in the pews there, we're going to open up to the book of Isaiah. Now, I had the reader only read chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But in order to really see what God is doing here, we have to understand more about what's happening in Isaiah up until chapter 9. So I want to spend some time, actually some significant amount of time, doing that. Kind of take us through the story here and set the stage. This is an amazing book, Isaiah, and God willing, we will preach through the whole thing at some point. But for today, hopefully, we will just enjoy this and be edified by getting more context here. Isaiah is, of course, a prophet. We call him one of the major prophets. We call him one of that major prophets. And you know, if anything about the prophets, if you know that, yes, they're one of God's mouthpieces, right? They're, they were sent by God to actually proclaim his words to his people. But typically what we see is God uses them in times when his people were drifting away from him. This time in history, which is about 700 years before Christ's first coming, was no different. The first five chapters of Isaiah describe the spiritual failure of God's people. They were covenant breakers, mistreating and oppressing the lowly. They were practicing false worship of the Lord and engaging in worship of other idols. We see in chapter 2, verse 5 of Isaiah, God called them away from that and called them back to him. It says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. God was appealing to his people to turn from their disobedience, to turn from their wicked ways, and come back to following the one true and living God. What do you think happened? They probably were completely broken over their sin and repented right away, right? They did not. They refused to listen. We read in chapter 5 of Isaiah, verse 30, the consequences of that. If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So there's the setting of the stage. Spiritual darkness had crept in, so much so that they had become spiritually blind. They couldn't see the light, God, that had never left them. Now how this blindness plays itself out in the physical world, we learn about in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we get to King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time. If you remember, after King Solomon had died, David's son, King Solomon, after he died, the people, God's people were divided. Some of the tribes went north and became the kingdom of Israel, and the other tribes, a couple of them, stayed true to the Davidic dynasty and became the kingdom of Judah. Now, kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah, both of these kingdoms at this time were on a list of kingdoms that the world power at the time, the Assyrian Empire, were setting out to conquer. The Assyrian Empire were going around that part of the world and conquering whoever they wanted. And they were on their way to Samaria, which was the kingdom of Israel. They were on their way to Jerusalem, which is the kingdom of Judah. Now, I, of course, didn't do that full justice. There's a lot more going on in the first seven chapters of Isaiah, but we only have about 40 minutes. So before I move on, I want to make sure we understand what's going on. God's people were living in disobedience, really a couple hundred years of going back and forth of obedience and disobedience. But the common denominator in the times of disobedience was this drifting away from God and running after other things to worship. Drifting away from the one true and living God 
and worshiping other things. There was no neutral place to be. God's people were either actively worshiping him or they were actively worshiping something else. Because of that, what the two kingdoms were faced with was this hostile takeover. God sends the Assyrians as a consequence of his people's disobedience. Now, we could spend a whole series of sermons on that topic and explain why that's the case, but since we can't do that today, just hear this. This happens because the Bible tells us that God disciplines the ones he loves, but it also was meant to be an opportunity for them to turn back to him, to turn back to the one true and living God. We can take something from that. When darkness comes into this world, when darkness comes into our life, it's meant to drive us toward God, not towards lesser things. Toward the one true and living God, not toward lesser things. So God's people here in Israel were in one of those spots. And what actually happened was the kingdom of Israel went looking for help. They joined the kingdom of Syria, not the Assyrians, but the Syrians. They went looking for help to the kingdom of Syria. And then what they tried to do is they tried to get Judah to join them. So they joined the Syrian kingdom, tried to get Judah to join them, because they thought that if they had three kingdoms put together, they would be more formidable going up against the one kingdom of Assyria. So what were they doing? Were they, again, looking to God for their help? Were they drawing into him as their help? No, they were looking to lesser things. They were looking to themselves to avoid the problem that they were in. They were looking to themselves to avoid the potential Threat. Now, King Ahaz, even though he was terrified, as we'll soon see, rejected their offer. He didn't want to team up with them. He didn't want their help. He was very prideful. But this didn't make the kingdom of Israel very happy. What they decided to do was form that alliance with the Syrians. Historians call it the Syro-Ephraimite alliance, and they decided to come after King Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah. They were going to conquer them, take over Judah, make their soldiers join their army to go up against the Assyrians. So what do we see here? King Ahaz is in some deep doo-doo, isn't he? He is the king of this small little kingdom and now has these two bigger powers that have teamed up and they're coming at him with the intention of conquering his kingdom and taking him off the throne. How do you think he handled it? The Bible tells us in chapter 7, verse 2, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He and his people were anxious. They were paranoid. They were terrified. They were completely overwhelmed with what was coming at them. We ever been in a similar spot? There ever been a time when circumstances in this life are so bad that our hearts are shaking like the trees before the wind? Maybe it's a sickness that we currently have. We can't seem to find the answer, and it's bringing us so much uncertainty about the future that we can't think about anything else. Maybe it's relationship problems. We don't know if our marriage is ever going to change for the better, and we wonder if we can actually do this whole till death do us part thing? Is it our kids? Maybe they have a sickness. Or maybe there's 
spiritual sickness. They no longer are following Jesus and they want to go their own way. And we feel like we've lost all possible control over that. Maybe that has us in a state of major guilt and it's blinding us to be able to see God's glory and goodness. Well, church, I am sure there's something in our lives right now that either has us there or there's something coming in the future for us that will have us there. So please, let's let Scripture today be a light to our path. Let's let this true story help us see and how to navigate this world, this fallen world. Faced with this potential danger, King Ahaz was presented with the decision to make. Trust God in the face of darkness that's coming for him and his kingdom, or trust something else. Right in this fallen world we live in, that question presses itself upon us on a daily basis, doesn't it? Sometimes in those crisis situations that I mentioned, other times in just the normal, everyday stuff of life, a question we need to be asking ourselves on the daily is, am I trusting God right now? Yes, we can be praying for our circumstances. Yes, we can be praying for God to take things from us. But one of the questions we need to be asking as Christians is, Am I trusting God right now? Am I trusting that he is good? That his ways and how he's called me to live are good? Am I trusting the lot that he's given me in this life is for my good and for his glory? Great and necessary questions to ask as we go through this life. And my hope today is that we would be able to see that trusting God is good here from Isaiah. As we move closer to chapter 9, I want us to see that God is someone that can be trusted and God is someone who can be trusted and it's the best option that we have to trust. But even more than that, this story shows us that even in our mistrust, even in our rejection of him, which happens all the time, his grace will triumph. His grace is what matters. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be all roses and rainbows for us, even in our times of full trust of him. Definitely not in when we're, when we're not trusting him. We see that here with King Ahaz. Even though God sent the prophet Isaiah directly to King Ahaz to let him know that destruction would not be their fate, we see that in verse 4. God says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I pray that we can hear that in times of darkness. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your hearts be faint. He's saying that don't let the Syrians and Israel, regardless if they team up, don't let them scare you. Because regardless of how big they may be together, they're nothing compared to me. Then down in verse 7, it says, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. He's letting them know that both Syria and Israel will not only not conquer the, Judah, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, but also tells them in verse 7 that both of those kingdoms will be destroyed in the near future, which actually happened. It's a historical fact that Judah was not conquered by this alliance between the Syrians and the Israelites. And unfortunately for them, both of those kingdoms were destroyed. They were destroyed by the kingdom of Assyria, which should be encouraging to us, right? Not that they were destroyed, not that people lost lives, but this is what I meant by seeing some evidence here from Isaiah 
that shows us that God can be trusted. Here we see that God protected his people. He told them they weren't going to be destroyed, and that's what happened. He restrained that evil from happening, which should show us that he does what he says he's going to do. The rest of chapter 7 through the beginning of chapter 8 shows us what rejecting God and trusting in something else can bring, though. King Ahaz decided to reject God, which led to God's people being judged. God even gave him an opportunity to ask for a sign. He says, King Ahaz, ask for a sign. He wanted them, Ahaz to be assured that he could trust in the Lord, but what did Ahaz do? Ahaz declined. And him declining, asking for a sign, again, led to the Assyrian Empire invading first the kingdom of Israel, then they made their way down to the kingdom of Judah. They wiped Israel completely out, and they almost completely wiped out Judah. So Judah didn't get conquered by Israel and Syria, like God said. That conquering didn't happen. But because of Ahaz's lack of trust of God, the Assyrians did come for them. Verse 8 of chapter 8 says, And it, that's the Assyrian invasion, will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Basically saying, we're going to almost completely wipe you out. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So again, reject God and choose another Savior and we will be judged. That's a truth that's communicated throughout the entire Bible. There are consequences to not worshiping the Lord. We should think about that in times of comfort as well as in times of distress, but let's not miss how some of the good news comes in here. Here is where God's grace triumphs. God in, is with us in times of darkness, and even when those times of darkness are consequences that he brings into our life. That's amazing. He's with us in times of darkness, and even when that darkness is consequences that he brings into our life. What was God doing this whole time? He called Isaiah to be a prophet for his people. They didn't deserve that. He sent Isaiah to call his people back to him. They didn't deserve that. He told his people that they would not be destroyed by the Syrians in Israel. They didn't deserve that. He told King Ahaz to ask for a sign that he could be trusted. Ahaz didn't deserve that. He allowed them to be struck down, but not completely destroyed. They didn't deserve that. And now we finally finish up this catch-up work. In the last section of chapter 8, he tells us that he is continuing his covenantal plan of redemption and that there will be a portion of those in Judah that will trust in him and be preserved. We see that in verse 18. It says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. By God's grace, there is a remnant in Israel. Here the Bible calls them children whom the Lord has given, who will continue on in the faith and continue to be used to carry out God's plan of redemption. Church, we want to be those children. Overall takeaway from that, even in our failures, even when we as the people of God break our covenant with him and reject him and go our own way, his grace triumphs over our failure. Believe that this morning. His grace triumphs over 
our failure. No matter what our circumstances are right now, and no matter how we may be failing to respond to those circumstances properly, if we are in Christ, if we are children of the great I am, his grace covers us. His grace and mercy brings us the forgiveness and love we need to remain his people and to stay on his mission. That should be amazing to us because it's not based off of anything we've done or anything we've not done. It's by his grace alone. It's by his grace we get to be his people and get to be on his mission. And finally, as we get to Isaiah 9, we get to finally see why that and everything else that I've said so far that has been good can actually be something we can enjoy. We get to see the primary way God is gracious and for his people. So let me read these verses again. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So remember, post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. We have already talked much about the darkness that God's people were experiencing, but one more verse to try to magnify it. Chapter 9, verse 1 comes right after chapter 8, verse 22, where it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's what we're coming from. All of this darkness that was the Israelites that God's people were experiencing. What we now see in chapter 9 is what God's answer to that darkness is. In these first couple verses of chapter 9, we see this. We see God bring glory out of gloom, light out of darkness, joy out of sorrow, freedom out of oppression. But from these first few verses, the original readers of Isaiah maybe were thinking, God, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. We really need that in this time of darkness. But how, God, how is that going to happen? The answer for them was probably a little confusing. Yokes, staffs, rods are all going to be broken. All of the enemies against the light will be dealt with. God's people are even going to use boots and garments of their enemies to fuel their celebration fire. A triumphant victory to rejoice over will be accomplished. A great battle will be won. But again, how? 
Well, God says through Isaiah, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, for to us a child is born. He says, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, for to us a child is born. This whole passage hinges upon verse 6. God has an answer to darkness, and what verse 6 tells us is it's a child that was to be born. It's a son that was to be given. Now, we know more about the story, so that's already great news to us, but can we put ourselves in the shoes of the Jews for a second? They were just brutally attacked by the Assyrians, living in a war zone. But God's comfort to them, that he wants to be good news for them, is that light is coming, and that light that's coming is not their circumstances immediately changing. It wasn't that they're dark, they were going to be free from darkness right away. But it's something better that they were to hope in. But for them, that might have been hard to be satisfied with. I think we struggle with the same thing. Being able to see God's answer as being the best answer. Being able to see God's timing as being the best timing. Back then, maybe some of them were like, a baby God? A son? Really? We just lost a bunch of our family members. We just lost our house, our livestock. Our land was destroyed, but you want some child that we don't even know when he's going to be born to be a comfort to us. You want that to be good news to us? We think like that a lot, don't we? We also have been told about something amazing that's going to be happening in the future, but struggle to see it as good news for us in the here and now. We compare temporal things to eternal things and then struggle to see the eternal things as better because the temporal things are more real to us. Bigger than that, I think this shows that it's a struggle for us to not see things through a selfish perspective, through a man-centered, self-centered perspective. We don't actually believe, believe that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We don't actually believe that all things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things. Which if we were believing that, we would, that would give us a God-centered perspective instead of a man-centered perspective. We struggle to see that our life is just a small, microscopic part of this grand story that God has written. Therefore, we magnify our needs, our desires, our place in life, and minimize God and the purpose that he has us here for. If God's people in Isaiah, that Isaiah was prophesying to, were going to see verse 6 as good news, they were going to have to see God's glory and his redemptive plan for his people as more significant than their current circumstances. Can we do that? Man, that's hard. There's no way that we'll be able to do that without the Spirit's help. There's no way that we'll be able to do it perfectly or probably even well on this side of glory. But if we are in Christ, we can be awakened to that again and again. We can rediscover that over and over throughout our life, and we can rejoice in the fact that God's glory and his redemptive plan, even though they might not always be peace and prosperity for us in this fallen world, they include us 
and ultimately are where our joy stands. Our joy, comfort, peace, prosperity, temporally and eternally are only found in relationship with God in the life that he's called us to live for him. We can trust that. And we can trust that because the Bible says we can trust that. And when we doubt that, when we doubt that believing in that, that trusting in that is good news for us, it's passages like we are in today. And especially during, excuse me, during this time of year that we can go to to fight against that doubt. We can go to these passages and see what God has already done to fight against that doubt. What do I mean? Well, let's look at what the Bible says about this son from Isaiah. In order to do that, we have to go back one more time to connect Isaiah 9, 6 to something else Isaiah revealed in chapter 7. When Ahaz rejected the opportunity to ask God for a sign, God decided to give him a sign anyway. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there's a lot that could be said about that, but for today, let's just see that God's sign to Judah was something that they were going to have to wait for. It was something that was coming in the future for them. Well, because we have the New Testament, we know that the Bible has something to say about their waiting. Their wait is over. It was future for them, but it's in the past for us. In Matthew chapter 1, we see who the Son actually is. In verse 21, we see this. She, that's Mary, the virgin, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, that sounds like a big deal, but there's more. Here it is. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Holy smokes. Matthew, who writes the most Jewish of all gospel accounts, meaning he meant to write to Jewish readers, readers who would have known the Old Testament extremely well, reveals that this son that God talked about in Isaiah over 700 years prior to this time was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Amazing. Can you imagine the joy of the people who were part of this nation who had been waiting for this for 700 years? But how is that connected to the child in the passage that we read today? For that answer, we have to go a little bit further into the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. Starting in verse 12, this is where Jesus' ministry begins, right? Right after he was taken out into the wilderness and, and tempted by Satan and then ministered to the, by the angels, it says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Have we heard of those places before? so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He then went on to quote Isaiah 9, the passage that we're in today. Again, what the New Testament is showing us 
is the prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus' first advent is Jesus is the child. He is the son that we see in Isaiah 9. Jesus, who is Emmanuel. Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. But now, we need to see what the rest of our passage tells us about Jesus. Verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus is going to rule. Verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Jesus is not only going to rule, he is going to reign. It's a king that came to this earth and to God's people. It's a king that was born. That's what the Jews were expecting. Again, I think it's this part of Jesus that a lot of Christians miss. The Jews were expecting the Messiah king who they knew was going to come from the Davidic line. In its contest, this is what makes Christ's advent so amazing. He didn't come out of left field. He wasn't an afterthought. He wasn't God's plan B once things got so bad. He was part of the story all along, and God was just making good on his promise. Remember, this is 700 years before Christ actually came. God is telling his people that a king was coming, and in this, he was inviting them back then to trust in him by faith. Trust in him by faith. It wasn't something they were going to see. He was saying, trust in me by faith. Faith. There's going to be a day when we will live by sight and not by faith anymore. That's going to be a glorious day. But some of that, for us, breaks through right here. Being on this side of Jesus' incarnation in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we get to see something that the people in Isaiah's day didn't get to see. We get to see in the first coming of Christ that God stays true to his covenant that he made with David and his people. We get to see that God was staying true to the promise that he made to the devil and to Adam and to Eve when he said, from Eve will come a seed that will crush the head of evil. We need to hear that. We need to know that God stays true to his promises. We need to see that God stays true to the covenant that he made with his people. I'm sure we have doubts that creep in about that all the time. That's where God's people were at in Isaiah. They not only were terrified of their survival, but they were also questioning whether or not God was going to stay true to his covenant. God was supposed to bring the Messiah through the line of David, and with this potential devastation coming from the Assyrians, one of those things that was at risk was that the line of David might be destroyed. If they completely wipe out Judah like they wiped out the Israelites, the line of David would have been destroyed which to the Jews would mean that their God had ultimately forsaken them. When we look at this world in all of its brokenness, all the babies that die every single year through abortion, the assault on the family, on gender, on traditional view of marriage, God being taken out of schools and corporate America and everything else in our culture, we may wonder sometimes if God has forsaken us, or at least has he forgot about us. Not true. Here we see that not only does God ordain that some of the Jews would survive the hostile takeover and that the Davidic dynasty would continue, even though, as we see in darkness at that time, God also is gracious to his people and reveals to them that one day, one day, 
And it's the day that we are in, the season of celebrating right now, darkness in this world would meet its maker. It will be destroyed. It will be fully pushed back. God has an answer to the darkness for the people in Isaiah's time. God has an answer to the darkness that's in your life right now and an answer to the darkness that's in this world right now. He hasn't forsaken this world. He hasn't forsaken us. And that answer is still here. It's not holiday cheer. It's not new year, new you. It's not the Christmas spirit, whatever that means. God has an answer to the darkness, and it's that light pushing back to darkness. And the only light that can truly push back true darkness is King Jesus. And he does that through establishing and then spreading his kingdom. A kingdom that, yes, is not fully here. It won't be until the second advent be fully consummated, but it's a kingdom that is here now. Jesus is king now. Why, why do we sing the songs that we just sang, right? Let earth receive her king. All glory be to Christ our king. Glory to the newborn king. Why was Herod so upset that Jesus was born? Because they told him that he was going to be a king. What did the wise men do when they came to Jesus? They fell down and worshipped a king. I think we struggle to believe that much of the time. There's this belief with some Christians that Jesus is only Lord if you let him. He's only Lord if he gets enough votes or if enough people give him a chance. No. Jesus is Lord no matter what someone believes about him. He is king right now. No matter what the culture says about him or who they say he is. Jesus is Lord now. We may not be submitting to his rule the culture definitely is in rebellion against his rule, but it doesn't change that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is Lord over everything, and his kingdom has come, and it's in the process right now of expanding. The world needs to hear that. Not just that Jesus saves, absolutely, yes and amen, but that's not the full truth about him. With that comes that Jesus is king, and submitting to his rule is what's best for you temporally and eternally. It's what's best for this world eternally. We can see that as we move on in this passage. What kind of king is Jesus? Verse 6 again, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That all sounds good to me. Listen to pastor and theologian Ray Ortland on this section. Wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. Mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. Everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Our king is perfectly wise, has omnipotent power, has fatherly care, and is the ultimate peacemaker. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. His rule and reign will never stop expanding, meaning there will not be one inch where there's rebellion. It's pervasive. Everything will come under his dominion. His rule and reign will never stop. There's no expiration date. But, it will, but will it be good is the question, right? It's never going to stop, but will it be good? Well, here it says that with his kingdom comes peace. That's shalom. 
Everything being made good, right, and beautiful. Better than anything we've ever seen, have experienced, or could even imagine. First that peace is between God and man, then that's peace among men, then it extends out into the rest of creation, meaning there will be no more chaos any longer. There will be justice and righteousness, no injustice, no unrighteousness, because Christ is the one who has established it and the one who upholds it, and he is full of justice and is perfectly righteous. Church, he is in the process of doing that right now. He is making all things new, including us, including this church, including this town, Moline, including this world. And here's what's amazing, is he's not just casually doing that. He's not just casually making all of that happen. Look how verse 7 ends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We aren't going to do it. Christ isn't going to do it begrudgingly. He isn't going to do it solely out of duty. He had a passion to come and do the work that he's already done, and his zeal still continues in the work that he's doing now. He is jealous to see it through. He has a burning passion to bring light to overcome the darkness of this world. We should be blessed and encouraged by that. That's the opportunity that we currently have and have every year. Just like it says in verse 3, let's rejoice as with joy at the harvest. Let's be glad as we're dividing up the spoil of our victory because that's what's happened. Yes, there's still more to the story that needs to be played out, but we know the author. We know what he says is going to happen. So really, when Isaiah 9 was fulfilled in Jesus, the victory was confirmed. The victory was sealed. Let's celebrate and live like it. Really quick as I close, let me just give you a little bit on how to do that. Church, let's use this time of year to be radically overjoyed that our Savior and King has come, that He's risen, that He's reigning, and that we can trust that He's returning. How do we do that? Start with saying Merry Christmas to everyone you see. Put up lights in your house, put up lights on your house, put up a tree. Heck, put up multiple trees. Let's overdo it. Listen to Christmas hymns nonstop. Bake Christmas treats and give them away. Lavish your family and friends with cards and gifts. Go to parties and be the one who has the most fun. There is no need to shy away from celebrating and rejoicing in this time, regardless of what some people say about its pagan roots, regardless of what some Christians may say about the culture hijacking this season. Is that true? It might be true, but the Christian response shouldn't be that we don't participate. The Christian response should be that we take it back. Christian response should be that we celebrate this season the right way, the Christ-honoring way. It's our season. Why curse the darkness when we can light a candle? Why throw it out when we can redeem it and, like our king, redeem it with zeal? We should celebrate hard, and we should celebrate every second of it, which is much better than being stressed out about the busy schedules and all the stuff that we have to do during this time, isn't it? Every ounce of celebration we participate in is proclaiming the good news to us, to our family, and to this world that to us a child is born to us, a son is given. Let's pray.
Father God, we want to do that. We want to do that every single day. We want to proclaim that Christ is King. We want to be, proclaim that Christ is Lord over us, over our life, over this world, Lord. There's many people that would reject it. We in our flesh reject that as well sometimes. So we pray that you would bring light into that darkness. Lord, first with us, that you would change us as Christians to have this desire, Lord, and this power to follow you. Lord, have this desire and this power to be able to live our life for your glory and that we would trust and know that that is where the most joy that we could possibly have stands. Lord, help us during this time. Help us to be obnoxious in our celebration of this time. Lord, let's not shy away from who you are. Let's not shy away from what you've done. You have come. You have brought light into this world. You have brought yourself into this world. You're ruling right now. You're reigning right now. And you're going to return to make all things completely new. You're going to get rid of all the darkness. It's fully going to be gone. And we can't wait for that to happen. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And until that happens, let's live like you are the king right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.